Hello, thank you for joining the MedVets. This is Marcus here, and today we have a special guest, Dr. Laura Purdy. Dr. Purdy is joining us today to talk about telehealth and the future of telehealth. So stay tuned as we get to learn more about her journey from the military to becoming a physician and some interesting things she has going on today. The force is with you, young Skywalker. But you are not a Jedi yet. You show is Purdy. Purdy. All right. All right, Purdy. <laughs> All right. Well, hello. Good afternoon. Welcome to the MedVet Show. We are here today with Laura Purdy. We are going to talk about the future of telehealth visits. Laura is a veteran and she's also a healthcare practitioner, a physician. So Laura, your story, I thank you for joining us today. And your story is, is very unique because you are not only a medical professional, but a veteran. So I would like to give a round of applause for Ed Medved joining us today, right? <laughs> thank you for joining us on this wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you um, so much for having me. Can you please let our listeners know your background, how you got started and where you are today? Sure, definitely. So I joined the army. I was in the army. Um, you hear me use the word was, right? So I was in the army. I joined in, I accessed in 2005. Okay. So what does that mean? Accessed. So I went to the uniform services university of the health sciences. I basically um, direct commissioned, but I wow. had to wait for, so, you know, I went through the application process, applied to school and everything. Um, but I, and so that was in 2005 and then school started in 2007. So I did my, you know, MEPS physical and mm -hmm. security clearance, everything 2005. And then school started in 2007. So as a direct commission program, it started out as the second or second lieutenant in 2007. And so wow. went through school. Yeah. And it was, so the Uniformed Services University, if you've never heard of it, it's mm. um, in Bethesda, Maryland. So if you've heard of mm. um, what they used to call the National Naval Medical Center, um, like back when Walter Reed was Walter Reed and then, you know, Bethesda Naval is what they used to call it. I think they're combined now, but um, it it's right next to where Bethesda Naval is right in Washington, D.C. So okay. school there. Then I did my residency at Fort Benning. <laughs> so Fort Benning is in Georgia okay. and that's where uh, a lot of the basic training is done. And like one of the, you know, Ranger school is there and airborne school is there. And so lots and lots of opportunities for people to need healthcare. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. It's, hot, it's in Georgia, you know, it's 400 degrees in the summer. And, and so, um, so did my residency there, then was at Fort Bragg for a couple of years doing what they call an operational tour. So I was the doctor for a civil affairs unit um, and then um, then came to Fort Campbell and actually worked at the hospital for a little while, then was the warrior transition battalion surgeon for a little while, which is a really neat program if you've never heard of that for folks that are transitioning, mm -hmm. but I actually I did not retire. I just resigned in May of this year to be a mom and be a wife and pursue telehealth. 
yeah. more rigorously. Well, congratulations. So. And again, thank you for your service because that, that sounds amazing. It sounds like you had an amazing experience. It was fantastic. Unlike anything you could have you know, ever dreamed of, it was great. Where, where are you originally from? I'm originally from Russellville, Kentucky, which is not far from Nashville, where I live okay. now. So. Okay, okay. So what got you interested in medicine? What got me interested in telehealth? Um, just in medicine and healthcare in, in, in general. Why do you want to pursue a career in healthcare? <laughs> That's a funny question. So, you know, it was an accident. I tell people it was an accident. It was my backup career. I thought I was going to be a musician. I was going to oh, wow. go be, yeah, I was a pianist. Um, and I love being a musician and singing and accompanying people on the piano. And, you know, at, at the end of high school, you're kind of starting to have some life lessons and maybe like making a few mistakes and figuring out what you do and don't want to do. And so I was really heavily involved in music at the end of high school and just had an experience that really turned me off to the whole thing as a career. And I was 17 years old and I walked away and I said, I quit. And I don't know what I'm going to do, but I quit music. And my dad, who was very wise, said, well, why don't you go, you know, be a nurse? And uh, my aunt is a nurse. She's worked at Vanderbilt for forever. And so we had healthcare folks in our family. And I said, you know what? That sounds great. And started shadowing, working at the hospitals and loved it. I loved, um, you know, being around people who had these healthcare needs and needed to be taken care of. And um, so I really came at it from a really different background, but I loved the opportunity to be able to take care of people and help people in their time of, of, of need and illness. And um, that's, that's how it happened. All right. So now you're in 2017, you get into the telehealth realm. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So one of my jobs in the army was a hospitalist, which if you're not familiar with that term, it's kind of like the PCP in the hospital. So like if you were to get hospitalized today, you're going to have a team of doctors that are taking care of you. And, but the hospitalist is like the main person who doesn't necessarily have a specialty, but they take care of all of your baseline needs. And if you need like a cardiologist, or if you need a, a nephrologist, a kidney doctor, or a GI doctor, or even a surgeon, mm-hmm. a lot of times people who go and have surgery still have a hospitalist who's um, just making sure that nothing gets dropped and paying attention to the whole um, patient, you know, the whole picture of the patient's care uh, rather than the specialty fields. So, so would you say the hospitalist is kind of like the concierge, like kind of like your individual your go-to person if you have any questions any needs that's your go-to is the hospital that's basically if you're in if you're in the hospital is that correct okay and i think you know they also make sure that a lot of protocols are followed for the hospital as well okay. so okay yeah i'm sorry laura yeah no you're right that's exactly what it is and they're the per you know if you ask your heart doctor your cardiologist oh what's going on with my stomach they're gonna say i don't know so <laughs> <laughs> But the hospitalist is the one that needs to be able to say, here's what's going on with that. Or I'm not sure, but I'll find out and get back to you. Or, okay. or if you have a new symptom, they say, oh, okay, let's check on that by doing this 
for you. So okay. conscientious is a good word. They're working for you. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that the scheduling works, because it's shift work, right? It's like working in an ER or working in urgent care, it's shift work. So we would have, I would say half the month where I wasn't at work because it was like, you know, you'd have like four days on, four days off and things like that. So telehealth, I got into just as a kind of way to fill my time. Um, my kids were in school and I was not working for two weeks of two weeks out of the month. So mm-hmm. I think at that time, and this was before COVID mm-hmm. telehealth, it just kind of made sense as a way to try to fill that gap without, um, cause you know, getting ODE paperwork signed off to work at a different hospital for off duty employment was not likely to happen for me, but working at home for yeah. telehealth, it, it was. <laughs> Who did you start off with? What, how did, which platform did you start with? Yeah, it's a great question. But I start off at MD Live, which was great because if you've ever heard of them, it's a huge company. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, really, it was already really well established by then. And so they had the infrastructure and the processes, and it was a great place to learn how to do virtual health. Okay, excellent. Now, at that time, you we were with um, MD Live. So a patient would call in and they would tell you what's wrong and you would um, cutting diet, help diagnose things for them and then just get them a prescription. How would that work? So if you've ever been related to somebody who's in healthcare and ever called them up on the phone and said, Hey, here's what I'm feeling. What do you think about that? Cousin? Who's a nurse. It was just like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. you have no That's idea. That's a great example. Yeah, it was just like that, except there's a prescription at the end of the conversation. So I'd be sitting there in front of my computer. I started off with only one state license, which was the state of Georgia. Mm -hmm. And I'm just sitting there waiting for a patient to pop up. I'd click on them and then the phone would ring. And really, you kind of have no idea what that conversation is going to look like. So it was about a 10 minute phone conversation. Who knows what they're going to say? But then at the end of it, most of the time, I think like 98% of the time they would get a prescription and maybe like 2% of the time it was more severe. And we'd have to say, you really need to go see your mm-hmm. doctor for that, go to the ER or something like that. Okay. Yeah. You know, and you know, when telehealth, you know, first came about, I, you know, didn't know a whole lot about it, but like you said, kind of like, you know, make a phone call to somebody to where, Hey, I'm feeling this kind of way, or you woke up feeling groggy and kind of wanted to, kind of get a better understanding as far as what was going on. So yeah, it was like the early stages of telehealth. Now kind of expand it a little bit more. And it, and then so from MD Live, did you, is that where um, MD integrations came about? Yeah, that's a great question. So MD integrations, I would say came about probably two years later. Okay. So you know, there's a lot of challenges I think that telehealth is facing from a, from a provider side, but also from a patient side, um, because we're really limited by what the technology can do or what our brains have thought of that we can do. And so after MD live, I worked for a ton of other companies, probably like dozens, (laughs) dozens, just trying to find a good fit, right? Like what, what works with my process flow, what works with my schedule, what works with compensation and like, how can I turn this into um, something that makes sense and isn't, you know, isn't super rigorous. And yeah, so MD integrations came along several years later after my partner, uh, my co-founder and I rather 
um, worked for so many different companies that we found ourselves waking up and logging into like 12 different platforms in the morning and using everybody's different system from a provider perspective, you have to cast a really wide net mm-hmm. if you want a kind of a stable, predictable source of workflow so that you're not sitting there staring at a computer screen, waiting for a patient to pop up. Mm-hmm. So is that a reason why I know you said, um, you, at the time, you only had your license in Georgia. Is that why now you have a license in almost every state in the U.S.? Almost every state. We're waiting on you, Alaska. Um, <laughs> but yeah, because the way that medicine works, and I, I realize not every licensed professional is this way, but for me as a physician, I ha- even though I live in Tennessee, every state has its own different telehealth laws hmm. regarding who can practice there and whether you have to do video or phone or chat, or whether you can like fill out a medical intake form and post some pictures, every state is different, but I can't treat or write prescriptions for, or give medical advice to anybody in a state that I don't have a license for. So my virtual clinic is really small. If I only have, you know, one or two licenses and also access to care, Mm. right? It's an access to care solution. If doctors get lots and lots of state licenses, now they're helping solve the access to care problem in more remote rural places where maybe there's no offices around or the commute is really far or the availability for appointments is is, is minimal. And mm-hmm. so it, it really behooves physicians to get more licenses to be able to do that. Has, um, have, have the laws changed since, let's say, since COVID for telehealth, right? Would you say that COVID has really opened kind of a, uh, a, a greater opportunity for physicians and patients and for patients to see physicians in other states? Or it, even though it's, it's open, it's still kind of gray area-ish. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think, honestly, patients have benefited the absolute most um, from the technological advances and like the legislation, um, evolutions through COVID, because I'll give you an example. So when I first started doing telehealth, there was about 15 States where you absolutely 100% had to do a video or a phone call and really who suffers uh, on the, you know, because I'm a physician, I can get licensed in a state and I can take as many videos or phone calls as we'll say my schedule allows, but you're limited by the time of day. You're limited. We're probably not going to do that at two o'clock in the morning, right? You're limited by how, you know, if it's a 10 minute phone call, there's only so many 10 minute phone calls that one, you know, physician can do in a day and a patient who's in a state like Louisiana or Arkansas, those were two of the early States that, absolutely made you like have to do a video call. I feel like those patients were really at a disadvantage because in other States like Mississippi or Georgia or Florida or the Carolinas, they could maybe go online and you could chat, right. Mm-hmm. And email, which again, you can really do that at any time of day. You're not yeah. intruding someone's house. They could be laying in bed and getting medical care. You know, they could be at work getting medical care. They could be sitting in the car line or at a soccer game And it allows the patients to be able to still do what they need to do and not be inconvenienced by Mm. 
let me stop what I'm doing and have a video call and be in the right place. And, and thankfully since, since COVID, I think a lot of the States have realized that the way that we define a doctor patient relationship does not have to be so old school, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Oh, I have to be on a video with you for 15 minutes for, for me to understand what's going on with your health. Not really. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think as the laws have broadened and they've kind of relooked at how they define what establishes a relationship between a doctor and a patient, the patients have been the ones that have really benefited from that because now they have so much more access. You know, one physician can extend a much wider reach and can impact so many more lives. The wait times are down, the message response times are down, the prescription, you know, transmission times are down. And I feel like as a whole, it's a much better patient experience. You know, you bring up a very interesting point because I never even thought about it. I would prefer to either chat, text rather than just an instant video call because it, it's kind of like that, especially if you never spoke to the doctor before, it's kind of like that awkward feel, right? And you're right. You may, I may not want you to see what I'm doing or in, in my privacy like that. So, you have the patient actually hair and makeup down before. Yeah, that's actually a really, I, ne- I never even thought about it like that, but that that's something I'm pretty sure. And then some patients, they don't have the technology or the, the tech savviness to even load up that camera right on their computer. So it is best for them just to email and they are at a disadvantage. That's like, that's actually an interesting perspective. And, you know, before it's been a while since, you know, I looked into this, but um, what did it where before you could do kind of like a telehealth visit, you had to have an established relationship with your doctor. Am I correct on that? Or um, did that still stand? Yeah, that's definitely when I say like old school mentality, mm-hmm. that's like, that's the old mentality. It's like, if you, I, I have made an analogy like this before to like going to the bank, mm-hmm. right? Like back in the day, you used to have to physically drive to the bank and sit outside the bank and they had a little tube system, you know, and the little tube would come up to the car and they'd get on the microphone and, oh, you want to make a deposit <laughs> here? It's going to take 15 minutes. Let me send some candy for your kids so you can sit in the line, right? We don't have to do that anymore. We get on our phones. There's no people involved. There's no driving involved. And we can use the bank. Healthcare is moving in that direction too. You no longer have to um, go physically see your doctor or have a big, long, drawn-out conversation, especially for simple things like if you have asthma, and you need, or an allergy, this is a good one, an allergy to bee stings. And you know, you have an allergy to bee stings and you just need an EpiPen. You may not see a bee in the whole next year. Do we need to get on a video and get to know each other for 15 minutes in order for me to say, that's fine. I'll send another EpiPen for your bee stings over to the pharmacy. <laughs> now that, now that we've developed a relationship for 15 minutes over video, bye. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Sense. You know, it doesn't make sense. So, so, where, so Laura, where do you see the future of, of healthcare going with telemedicine? Yeah, that's a great question. What, what, like, so what would be like kind of the new school, new transition? Let's go maybe either we could do uh, whatever you prefer, a five, a 10 year or 20 year perspective. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, I, I hope that it's something that I could never even dream of, right? Like, I hope that the future of healthcare is so incredible and outrageous and innovative that I, I couldn't even imagine it right now. And 20 years from now, we're saying, holy cow, <laughs> <laughs> imagine that this is what we could do. Because what stands between today's telehealth and two decades from now telehealth is innovators, entrepreneurs, 
you know, medical device makers, right? Like your colleague there and people who can really think outside the box, challenge the status quo, you know, ask why we're still doing things this way and come up with crazy, amazing ways to do it better. Um, but if I, if I can rein that in just a little bit, one of the, there's been a couple of populations of people, I think that have not been benefited as much from telehealth. So, you know, our, I'll say more mature population, like 65 and older, those who are less technologically savvy, those who maybe, um, like we talked about earlier, don't necessarily have the education level to understand what's going on or the finesse to be able to use telehealth and those who really truly need in-person care. There traditionally has been this definitive stop where it's like, we can do telehealth up until this point. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, I can't help you. I'm so sorry. Go somewhere, see someone about something. Good luck, (laughs) you know? And I think you can do better than that. And so I think we're going to start seeing more hybrid models where companies are connecting to local in-person facilities and also vice versa, where like brick and mortar facilities are developing more robust, nationally reaching telehealth programs. So there's more of an integration of in-person care versus online care versus, you know, where it's not, it's one or the other, it can actually be both, right? And I think that as technology evolves, right, with things like wearable devices, smart devices, smart technology, remote patient monitoring, um, especially with our more mature aging population, I think we're going to be able to do a better job. Here's a really good example. Let's say if you're, um, we'll use the VA as an example, right? So excellent, excellent example. Let's use the VA as an example. Let's say um, my husband, who's still in the National Guard, let's say he um, he gets out and 20 years from now, he's going to his you know VA appointment. And let's say, just pretend not much changes and he's not allowed to have a visitor at his, um, you know, his VA appointment, which right now with COVID and everything, we've kind of lost our ability to go to medical appointments with our loved ones, which really has impacted our ability to have a shared understanding about what's going on with our loved ones' healthcare. And I think that's been a detriment. Mm, if people don't plan, if they don't know, if they can't be present, how can they help? So let's pretend like that's still the case in 20 years. My husband goes to see his doctor at the VA and he walks in the room and there's this giant interactive screen in the room and they go beep, beep, boop. And I pop up on the screen, right? I'm at home or maybe I'm traveling or maybe I'm visiting my grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Who knows what I'm doing, but I'm not there, but I pop up on the screen. And now all of a sudden I am present through telemedicine for my husband's VA medical appointment. The doctor can bring the labs up on the screen. He can highlight and say, here's what we're working on. Here's what we're working on. Here's your medicine list. I'm going to add this. I'm going to take away this. I want you to go do that. Mrs. Purdy, Mr. Purdy, do you all have any questions? Okay, great. You know, and then that's a way that we can do telehealth in, in a new modality that doesn't really exist right now, but I think really extends how we can take care of people and 
foster like a shared understanding and knowledge of healthcare. It's exciting. It is. No, actually, that is exciting. <laughs> I can definitely see that now. No, for sure. That that was a great example. Excellent example. So let, let me let me change gears real quick. So I, I want to ask Keith a question, and I want you to kind of off of off of his response, you let us know which what if he's correct or incorrect. Okay. So so Keith, I, for the audience, if you could just define your version, it, it could be incorrect or right or wrong. Right. Okay. We're all learning. What's the difference between telehealth and telemedicine? If there is a difference, what? I, because I think people people use them interchangeably. And I'm not sure that they are. Um, I wouldn't think there is a difference. Okay. I, I'm, I'm probably wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, I I would yeah I would use them interchangeably. You know, I would say depending on on say telehealth telemedicine, I would think it's the same thing. Am I wrong? You're right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Look at that. There's no difference. <laughs> Why, you got why, it. So why do people why 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 do they call one telehealth into is it just kind of like um healthcare and healthcare, right? One word versus two words. Why, telehealth why, why telemedicine. Do they call, they're the same thing, like you can call it a doctor, a doctor or a physician. True. Okay. You know, so. Okay. Okay. I think it's yeah, you're right. It's just about the words that people hear, the words they're exposed to, marketing tools, true, what, you know, what they see online. Some people say virtual care, televisit. <laughs> I've heard televisit, you know, things like that, but they all mean the same thing. Excellent. And do they all encompass, um, like you said, either video, phone call, email, chat, would all that be encompassed under the same umbrella for telehealth and telemedicine? Okay. Absolutely. I think for clarifying that, because I think that's that's been an ongoing conversation for quite some time. Um, all right. So, Laura, so let's talk about the government's involvement in the health and healthcare industry. I guess you got to take things political sometimes, right? If you got, if you want, if you want to get things done, you got to go certain routes. So, what are your thoughts on the government's involvement and how they can either be more involved to help push for telemedicine and, and help change the healthcare industry at a more rapid pace? So, I'm curious to know, like, what do you think should be the government's involvement to really push things forward, and how are you yourself pushing and advocating for that? Great question. So, I'm actually, so I'm actually involved in. Um, lobbying on a, in sort of like an activist role at the federal level, because one of the things that I, I think is not fair mm -hmm. to patients, right, is, is the laws. So right now, telemedicine laws are governed by several different agencies, and there's a huge disconnect. So for example, that's, and it's all on state levels. So there's really not a lot of federal government, um, influence in what's happening in telehealth. And the reason why is because doctors receive their state licenses from the state governments, right? So the Tennessee state medical board tells me how I can and can't practice telemedicine in the state of Tennessee. Mm. What's really interesting is that there's also a state board of nursing, right? So the state board of nursing covers how nurse practitioners can do telemedicine in the state of Tennessee and the board of medicine has no jurisdiction over nurse practitioners. So the rules could actually be different for one provider over another. Wow. And if, yes, right. Isn't that mind blowing? That is, that is absolutely. I, did you know that? I didn't No. No, I did not know that. Wow. Right. Okay. And then furthermore, you have the DEA, 
which is more of a federal entity that controls the laws for controlled substances and other sort of electronic prescriptions. Mm -hmm. So you have some federal, and then you have federal payers, right? Like Medicare, Medicaid, who just won't reimburse for a lot of telehealth services, which impacts access to care. So you have state governing bodies that are telling the doctors what they can and can't do. You have federal entities that are talking about what drugs you can and can't prescribe to who at what time through what modality. Then you have certain federal entities saying basically who can use telehealth and who can't based off of what they will and won't pay for. And it's kind of a legal nightmare if you think about it, because how do you know what you can do? I mean, I know what I can do because I have a lot of attorneys, Mm -hmm. (laughs) talk to a lot of lawyers, and I've been doing this long enough that I understand what the laws say. But I do think um, so. I don't necessarily think that the federal government should try to have more control or more influence because really it is the state medical board, which is a public service agency designed to keep the public safe, right? At the end of the day, that's what a state medical board is for is to keep the public safe and to make sure that doctors specifically, and usually physician assistants as well, follow and fall under the board of medicine and a few other types of specialties. Um, They're making sure that they're doing good practice doing right by their patients and being safe. Um, But I I think that we really need to reconsider at the, you know, at the kind of legislative level, how we can best help the patients. And I feel like putting a lot of restrictions on the, on the what and the how, um, I think it really impairs patients' access to care. You may find it interesting to know that one of the hardest states to get licensed in, state's not the right word, and one of the most difficult locations to do telehealth is Washington, D.C. Why is that? I don't know. Their laws are very strict uh, with regard to, like, it's got to be a video. You have to have this doctor-patient relationship. It's really loosened up since COVID, right? Prior to COVID, it was much more strict. They have a lot of emergency um, statutes and emergency policies. And you can go to the medical board website and see all the emergency stuff. Like technically right now I can practice telemedicine there because they've even put a waiver into place, but, um, COVID exemptions, notwithstanding, because we don't know if there's, those are going to be permanent or not. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes forever, forever years, wow. it can take months to years. And, you know, the application times out after six months. So, it's a very difficult process to obtain a license and they require videos for all visits. So really places like Louisiana and Arkansas and Alaska are more progressive and have better access to care than our nation's capital. Wow. We can do better than that. Yeah, I think. Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I agree. hundred percent. So we could probably talk about that for a whole hour in and of itself, but mm-hmm. I do think we, we could, and we should, and in the lobbying efforts that I'm doing, I'm encouraging our lawmakers to take a closer look where they're saying this is okay, but this is not okay. And this is how we define practice of medicine. I, at the end of the day, if the patient feels like they've been taken care of, if the patient feels like they've been heard and understood, even if it's through things like chat or email or photos or whatever way Mm -hmm. that is 
if the patient's needs are met and no harm is done, then we've done our job. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So. I agree with that. And I like the way you wrote that down. But okay. yeah, um, and then like, like you with, with telehealth, I'm very passionate when it comes to the implants. And, you know, make sure that, you know, they do have that quality of care, you know, that they, there needs to be a better standard of care when it comes to the implants and also uh, the manufacturers and also any kind of post-market surveillance, mm -hmm. you know, with uh, recalls, lot numbers, a, a number of things. And sometimes um, that ball is, you know, had been dropped. So, but yeah, you know, Laura, I applaud you because you are a trailblazer. Seriously. I mean, not only from being a, a veteran to a, a top-notch medical provider and transitioning from old school to new school, right? And, and really making sure that patients are cared for and physicians are using the technology the way laws are according to it. So I really applaud you on that. And I thank you for that. And I'm, I'm interested to know, as a woman, right? As a woman serving in the military, being a female physician, and not like, you know, lobbying, how, how has that role kind of impacted you being a mom, a wife, <laughs> a veteran? Like, how has that feel, like, how has that path been? Because I'm pretty sure it hasn't been easy. You know, it hasn't, it has not been easy. I'll agree with you there. I, you know, it was a different time in 2007. It was a very different time. It was a very, I mean, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. Um, but it was a different time. It was a different time for women. It was a different time for mothers. It was a different time for dual military spouses because I was active duty, um, with a higher date of rank, mind you, and <laughs> I to get that in there, when I can. but as, as the woman, as the mother, there was always still this expectation, even from like my husband's chain of command mm -hmm. that, I would have the kids, I would step away and do whatever needed to be done, even though like I was a major and so was he eventually. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but it, it, there was always the expectation that that mom's going to take care of it. And so on the one hand, we would hear, you know, the army doesn't care. Doesn't the army doesn't care. A soldier is a soldier. But mom's got this right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's like, you, you know, if the army's not going to care, then the army has to realize that a parent is a parent and, you know, dad had just as many responsibilities as mom did. And that wasn't always the case. I mean, early on, I definitely heard things like if the army actually, let me see if I can quote this directly. Women who want to have a family have no business being in the military. Wow. I heard that before I had kids and went on wow. to have kids anyways. Um, and stayed in for several years after that there, you know, it's definitely, I would say both the military and medicine is a, a male dominated profession and military medicine even more so. And I know you can't really, you can't really see this, but I'm very diminutive in size as well. So I don't have a very big, um, presence, right. A small person, with lots of little small people around me. And so I really did have to kind of uh, fight and prove it. I had to be really, really good at what I was doing. I had to take a stand. I had to say things like, I'm in labor right now. I can't attend a meeting. Mm -hmm. 
which happened twice. I actually wow. got called to go to meetings when I was in labor two times. Wow. And let me wow. ask you this question. How many times when I was in labor, do you think my husband got called to a meeting? Zero. <laughs> Zero. But I was there going, hold on, wait till I get my epidural. Let me talk to my assignment officer just so that I can make sure we can be stationed together at the same location. Wow. Get my epidural and, and then I'll call you, you know? So I think that, um, and at that time, you know, so one of the things I, I took away from that, all of that, right, mm-hmm. is that outside of the military, we have a choice. When you're in the army, you don't really have a choice. <laughs> like if my commander calls me up and says, we're having a meeting, I don't care if you're in labor, I guess I'm having a meeting and also a baby at the same time, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. like, wow. you know, at, to an extent, I don't have the ability to say no, and I don't have the ability to choose, you know, mm-hmm. um, but now that I'm out, you know, when you talk about things like blazing trails and doing telemedicine, and I guess if I could say this could be my message to all women, veteran, mother, entrepreneur, doctors <laughs> out there is we get to choose. I can choose to be as much of a mom as I want to be as much of a wife or an army spouse as I want to be, or as much of a doctor or an entrepreneur or virtual health. Um, You just have to have the drive and the motivation and the perseverance. Don't ever let anybody tell you that you can't have it all because you can totally have it all. You just have to define what that means for you and what you need to do to take those steps to make that happen for you. Amen. Oh, man, that was way to close it out, audience, man. So that was Miss Purdy, Miss Laura Purdy. That was amazing because I agree with you wholeheartedly, 100%, you know. Um, and I thank you again for, for sharing that, all the information you shared with our listeners today. I also thank you for being a part of this podcast. And I, I hope that we can stay connected because I am so interested just to, you know, hear more about your successes and your feats. And, you know, you, you really hit the head on the, the nail on the head when you said that, you know, in the military, I, I felt personally that I, you know, I could do more. I felt I was I was controlled, you know, but sometimes you need that kind of kick in the kick in the rear, right, just to get things going. But then when you realize, like, you, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, you can be greater. And it, it literally just takes the time, vision, and passion to do so. And thank you for sharing that because it feels it felt great to hear that, you know, and I'm pretty sure all the listeners are enjoying it as well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, it's an so, honor. No, with, with that said, um, how can, uh, if, if any of the listeners want to connect with you, reach out, I mean, do you have any seminars coming up? Can they reach out to you via email, social media? What would be a good way for someone to connect with you? Absolutely. You can find me on social media. LinkedIn is probably the best way. Laura Purdy. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me through, um, you can email me ellieperdy2 at gmail.com. Send me an email. I love to connect. And one little plug, if you're looking for a job, reach out to me because I might not particularly have one, but I know a ton of virtual health, telehealth, telemedicine, what I'm going to call it, companies <laughs> that are looking for people to hire in every category of employment, whether you're a web developer or a salesperson or a nurse, um, and they love veterans, they love, companies love hiring veterans because they're just a special kind of person and the work ethic is unmatched. And so 
reach out absolutely. to me. Yeah. All right. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much, Laura Purdy. Um, we'll stay connected. And again, if you want to reach out to her, please do make sure that you subscribe. Tune in next time. Hear more podcasts with the Memphis. Thanks for listening.